At this time, let's turn in our copies of God's Word to Paul's letter to the Corinthians, the first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and we'll be reading the entire chapter. Let's give careful attention now to God's holy Word. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, It profits me nothing. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. Is not puffed up. Does not behave rudely. Does not seek its own. Is not provoked. Thinks no evil. Does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails, but whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. And now abide faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Amen. Let's turn now to John's first epistle, chapter 4 and verse 7. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. We'll be reading 1 John 4, verse 7 to chapter 5, verse 3. Once again, let's hear God's Word. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love has been perfected in us. 
By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us, because He has given us of His Spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God, and God in Him. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as He is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves Him who begot also loves Him who is begotten of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments and His commandments are not burdensome. May the Lord bless the reading and preaching of His Word to us this evening. Amen. Well, let's turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the first passage that we read, seeking God's help and blessing this evening. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, this evening we'll be considering the first couple verses there, first three verses. Paul says, in verse 1, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. He goes on, though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow, he says, all my goods to feed the poor, And though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. This chapter has been often referred to as the love chapter, and rightly so. This chapter is devoted to addressing the issue of Christian love. And as we're going to see, there's nothing that should attract our attention as Christians more than love. We need to understand what love is. We need to understand this chapter. This is not a comprehensive summary of love in, in that you find everything about love in this chapter. As we saw in 1 John chapter 4 and chapter 5, there's much about love in other parts of the Bible. This is not the only place that you would go, but it is perhaps the most significant the most powerful chapter in all the Bible dealing with the subject of Christian love. 
And that's important for us because Jesus says, as He's commenting on New Covenant history that is yet to come in His own day, He he comments and He says that where wickedness abounds, the love of many will grow cold. We live in a society where wickedness abounds. Therefore, we should take stock of the danger that our love would grow cold. In fact, some commentators point out that Jesus doesn't simply say that the love of many will grow cold, but He says that the love of the many, perhaps referring even to His own disciples, that during periods of wickedness and cultural decline, that they ought especially to be careful against this threat to the church. The decline of the love of God's people. As we consider 1 Corinthians chapter 13, God willing, in the weeks ahead, it's important for us to understand why this chapter and why this subject is so important. Why do we need to understand love as it's presented here by the Apostle Paul? And I think there are at least five aspects, five relevant implications of this chapter for each one of us to consider. The first is that when we consider the love that's described in this chapter, it shows us who God is and who God has revealed Himself to be in the person of Jesus Christ. When we see the the love for God and love for others that is described here, we ought to immediately be thinking of the fact that this reflects the character of God whom John says is love. And that God has revealed Himself such that when we look at Christ, we see the character of the Father. When you've seen Christ, you've seen the Father. So, this is a representation of who God is and who Christ is and the perfect standard of love that He perfectly fulfilled throughout His life on earth in order to purchase our redemption. Jesus Christ fulfilled the law for His people and as we'll see Law, the law is fulfilled by love. Love for God and love for others. Jesus perfectly fulfilled that on behalf of all of His people and was obedient even to the death of the cross, fulfilling the precepts of the law and suffering the penalty of the law on behalf of believers and being raised up for our justification. So our righteousness before God is described in this chapter. Secondly, when we consider love in this chapter, it shows us why we need Christ. It shows you as you're studying this passage, as you're listening to the sermons, perhaps even reading through this on your own time and meditating upon it, it shows you why you need Christ. Because as you read through the description of love here, you'll see that what God demands of you is something that you have never fulfilled perfectly and you never will. This describes a perfect, in one sense, unattainable standard that you will always find yourself, when you read through this passage, being convicted of sin. It's meant to convict you of sin. It's meant to to take your eyes off of yourself as if, well, you're a good person and you try to treat people the way that you want to be treated. It just completely removes all hope of self-righteousness. This passage is perhaps one of the most powerful and yet neglected tools of evangelism. Read through this passage and then tell me that you're headed for heaven because you're a good person. Because the fact is what God says love is in this passage 
by implication means that every time you violate this perfect standard, you're engaging in hatred. Uh, If you don't suffer long and remain kind toward other people in your life that are treating you unfairly and that are being totally unreasonable, to the extent that you aren't long-suffering and patient with them, you hate them. And we could go on and on throughout this passage. Violating this passage in, in any jot or tittle amounts to hatred. And if we characteristically engage in the patterns of behavior that are forbidden in this passage, we're guilty of hatred. We're haters rather than those who love God and love others. And so, we need to be convicted of sin. This is why we need Jesus Christ to perfectly fulfill the law of love on our behalf. Thirdly, this passage provides us with a helpful measuring stick to determine whether we have Christ. So it shows us who Christ is. It it shows us why we need Christ. And it also gives us a measuring stick to see if we in fact are true believers in whom the Holy Spirit dwells, whom God is enabling by His power to walk in love. Are you being conformed to the law of God, to the law of love? Does Jesus Christ live inside of you and is He producing in you imperfectly but gradually and increasingly a spirit of love? John says that if we don't have love for our brother, if we don't love God and express that through love for our brethren, Jesus even says love for our enemy, if we don't have that kind of love, then we don't even know God and we're headed for hell. So, Obviously, none of us meets this standard perfectly, but do we desire to meet this standard? Is the Holy Spirit giving us an urgency to strive in His strength to follow in this pattern of love? Are we repenting where we've fallen short? Are we trusting in Christ one foot in front of the other to walk in this path? If we're not, and if there are sins described here, that when we're confronted for them, we say, oh no, it's not a sin. I'm justified in in my behavior. That's a bad sign. So this is a, a way of evaluating. Have I truly been born again? Fourthly, this chapter and its discussion of love will describe for every true believer who you are becoming in Jesus Christ. This gives you a foretaste, not just of heaven, we'll see that in a moment, but it gives you a foretaste of what Jesus Christ is doing in your life by His Spirit and what you will become, God willing, a year from now, two years from now, five years from now, ten years from now, twenty years from now. In the life of the true Christian, this will continually and increasingly manifest itself in increased love for God and for others. And so this is an encouraging passage which shows us the pattern that we ought to live by and also encourages us that, look, this is, this is who we're becoming. The Christ-like, pleasant, laudable example set forth in this chapter. What an encouragement that is if we trust by faith that God's actually working in our lives. And fifthly, this chapter shows us what we will inherit in Christ for all eternity. Because we're told 
that there's faith, hope, and love, and, and they're abiding, and yet the greatest of them, the one that abides even on into eternity, when in one sense faith has been replaced by sight, and hope has been replaced by the realization of all of our hopes in heaven, yet love will continue. In fact, heaven is, as Edward said in his treatment of this chapter, heaven is a world of love. So you read this chapter, love for God, to the point where we see Him and we love Him, though we have not laid eyes on Him physically. By faith we see Him as through a glass darkly. But in heaven we will see Him face to face. Our love for God in Christ will just be exponentially amplified and multiplied. Our experience of Him in heaven and our love for the brethren and their love for us. And so, as we deal with the, the cold hard reality of the failures all around us in our own lives, in the lives of other believers, the breakdown of love in the church, the breakdown of relationships, uh, schism in the church, disagreements that are not always reconciled this side of eternity, we can see in this chapter an encouraging foretaste and reminder of what is to come that all of those sins, all of the lack of love, all of the imperfection in the church on earth will one day be corrected and will be reconciled with all of our faithful brethren for all eternity in Christ. Heaven is a world of love. So there you have it. It shows us who God is in the person of Christ, our Savior. It shows us why we need Him with His perfect obedience. It gives us a measuring stick to determine and make our calling and election sure whether we truly have believed in Christ. It shows us who we're becoming in Christ as sanctified believers. And it gives us, uh, as Moses on the mountain looking out at the promised land, it, it gives us a foreshadowing of what we'll inherit in heaven. So many reasons to pay close attention to this chapter. Now the first thing that Paul does in describing this issue of love in, in the Corinthian church is he addresses the fact that there's no substitute for Christian love. That it's often the case in the church, as was the case in Corinth, that we can be focused on the wrong things. Whereas love is the fulfillment of the law, it's the centrality of the Christian life, it's who God is, it's who Christ is, it's who we ought to be, all Ten Commandments are grounded in love for God and love for others. And so, we can easily become distracted. And in Corinth, they had rivalries and divisions. And they were fighting about who their favorite preacher was and this and that, different teachings and, and uh, who had this spiritual gift and who had the other spiritual gift and which gifts were superior and more excellent. And Paul says at the end of 1 Corinthians 12, he says, I'll show you the more excellent way. It's to stop making the gifts and the outward glory that, uh, that, that, that you've been attributing to those in church leadership and those exercising spiritual gifts. It's to stop making that the focal point of the church and focus upon the main thing, which is love. Love for God and love for others. Now, in the course of addressing this issue, Paul does indicate to them that some spiritual gifts are more excellent than others. Some of the spiritual gifts were miraculous gifts 
that were temporary in the life of the church to confirm uh, the, the truth of God. And once the 66 books of the Bible were written down and the canon was closed and, and, and all of that, these gifts faded away. But he says that the gifts in the, church, the early church that were most important were the ones where the Word of God was being declared, specifically the gift of prophecy or the gift of preaching, where the truth of God was declared in a way that people could understand and hear it and believe it and repent and seek the Lord's face. He said that in, in the life of the church, those are the gifts that are most vital to our Christian life, though the rest of them are important as well. So, so there is a, a bit of a priority scale. But he says even more than that, it's love. And if we could put it this way, Paul is dealing with a problem in the Corinthian church where they are valuing gifts above graces. Sometimes when we think of people being called to office in the church, we say, do they have the, the relevant or requisite gifts and graces? So there's certain gifts, certain abilities that God will give to elders and deacons, and He's raising them up, and that's important. We don't want to have church officers that don't have gifts and don't have the Spirit-imparted abilities to fulfill the task at hand. But what Paul is saying is, you can't value gifts above graces. And in Corinth, you get the sense at times that it wasn't just uh, gifts above graces, but it was gifts without graces. And that is an incredibly big problem in the church. If somebody has certain abilities, and yet they don't have a true love for God and love for others. Paul says that uh, in the case of those who preach the Gospel, if they have a whole lot of knowledge, that knowledge could very well puff them up, but they need love which actually edifies and builds up the church. Chapter 8, verse 1. So we've got to be careful about valuing gifts above graces. Look at 1 Timothy 3, the qualifications for deacons and elders, and you see the primary emphasis there, though Gifts are important. The primary emphasis is upon spiritual graces, their conduct, their attitude, their humility, their obedience to God's commandments. That's the focus. Graces are paramount. And love is the sum and substance of all sanctifying grace. There's no aspect of Christian sanctification that does not involve love. Love is at the heart of of everything in the Christian life. Love is the heart of the Christian life. And it is, when we speak of love, it's really the sum and substance of all sanctifying grace. Jesus was asked by one of the Jewish religious leaders, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said, really, there are two. The first great commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So love for God. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. On these two things hang the law and the prophets. So the Christian life is is a painting that has two nails that, that it's hung on. And it's love. Love for God and love for others. So every single command in the Word of God boils down to love. Every time we sin, it's a lack of love for God and or our neighbor. Every single time. John 13.35, Jesus says, they will know that you're my disciples 
by the love that you have, not just for your enemies, not just for those outside the household of faith, but especially the love that you have for your brethren, for one another, for fellow Christians. People are to see that. And that is to confirm and validate that there's something unique here. That these people are followers of Jesus Christ and they are the real deal. We're told in John chapter 14, verse 15, Jesus says, If you love me, keep my commandments. If you love me, keep my commandments. So in that sense, all forms of Christian obedience come down to love for the Christian. Do do you love Christ? And every time you violate His commandments, it's an act of hatred against Him. Every time I sin, that's a lack of love for Jesus Christ. And when you look at the law of God, I mean, it it reflects the perfect character of God. So the more we love who God is, the more we're going to walk in accordance with that law that reflects His character. We know that the law is embodied in Christ. The more we love Christ, the more we're going to walk in His footsteps, walk in His ways, walk in His commandments out of love for Him. So on and so forth. All the logic of Christian doctrine leads to love. And when Peter famously or infamously denied the Lord three times, Jesus restored him in the final chapter of John's Gospel. And He restored him with a threefold question. He asked him three times, Simon, do you love me? Do you love me more than everybody else? All these other disciples, like, like you claimed that you were more faithful than them. If they denied me, you'd be faithful unto death. Do you love me more than them? And in, in humility, he has, to, he has to recognize that, well, he loves Jesus, but perhaps not as much as he thought. But that's the, that's the pattern there that Jesus uses to restore him to make it clear that he's a true child of God that has backslidden and now been restored. The issue is, do you love me? Do you love me? That's what he's asking you tonight. Do you love me? And do you love the least of these, my brethren, the body of Christ, my bride? Do you love me? Do you love my church? Do you love the image bearers that I've created throughout the world? Do you love your enemies as a way of reflecting my love? Do you love me? I mentioned that love is the fulfillment of the law. Paul makes that clear in Romans chapter 13, verse 8. He says, Owe no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves, any, uh, he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, all are summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And then he says, and do this knowing the time. That now it is high time to awake out of sleep. Great passage for an evening service. It is, it is now high time to awake out of sleep for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. He, he's saying that we need to wake up. Oftentimes we can become complacent. We, we talk about love. We sing about love. But we forget what it really is. And we forget that love is the fulfillment of the law of God. People today in the Christian church will sometimes 
try to soft pedal the law of God and push it to the periphery and say, well, it's not really about love. It's about a relationship. It's about love. And that's all fine and good, except that biblically speaking, the law spells out what love is. How do I love God? Well, I don't put anybody else in God's place. I worship Him according to His commandments. I honor and reverence His name. I keep His day holy and spend time with Him and His people. How do I love other people? Well, I submit to authority and use authority in a proper and and non-abusive way. And I respect and defend my, my own life and the life of other people. And I remain sexually pure and promote the chastity of other people. I don't steal, but rather I work so that I can be a blessing and give to other people. Uh, I don't lie. I don't exaggerate the truth. I don't slander people. You know, I I respect the truth in all the words that I speak. I let my yea be yea and my no be no. And I don't covet. I don't desire what other people have that God hasn't given to me. I don't envy them and so on. The Ten Commandments actually describes what love is. And so God's given us so many different ways to understand love. You can look at the character of God who is love. You can look at the life of Christ. You can look at the examples of love throughout the, the different uh, people like the Apostle Paul and the Apostle John. You can look at the law of God given at Mount Sinai. You can look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13. The point is love is the sum and substance of all sanctifying grace. Paul tells Timothy the purpose of the commandment, which seems to be more comprehensive than any one particular commandment. It seems to be, in a sense, the, just the, the moral obligations of the Christian life. The whole apostolic message. The purpose of the commandment. 1 Timothy 1 verse 5 is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith. So if, if you truly have a regenerate, pure heart if you have a good conscience and sincere faith, then it's going to produce love. And that's the whole purpose of Paul's ministry, love. He can sum it up like that. And we could go to so many different passages. Galatians chapter 5, faith works by love. And James similarly, in James chapter 2, says that if you have a true and living, justifying faith... It's going to work itself out in love. It's going to be confirmed and justified before men by the love that it produces. If you say you have faith, but somebody in need comes by and you don't help them and you don't show love to people and you have a pattern of neglecting your duties toward other people, then your faith is worthless. It's dead. It's not true justifying faith. You might as well have the faith of a demon because it's not true faith if it doesn't produce love. Peter in 1 Peter 1 says to make your calling and election sure. And he says that we can do that by observing the love that the Holy Spirit has produced in our lives. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the Word of God which lives and abides forever. So, how do you know you're born again if you have love? If your life, to one extent or another, increasingly reflects 1 Corinthians 13, if it reflects the fervent love that Peter describes in 1 Peter chapter 1. 
And that includes love for Christ. 1 Peter 2, 7, Therefore to you who believe, Christ is precious. He's precious. And you can see the love, you can see the faith of a true believer in the love they have for the Christ whom they see and know by faith. As I said, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5, he says, but also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. For if these things are yours and abound, in other words, not perfectly, but they're increasingly growing, and okay, you backslide, but then you repent, and then you get back in the game, and and, and here's God working in your life, if that's the case, then you will neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Lots of people have theological knowledge, but are you being fruitful? Well, are you loving people? That's one of the criteria. For he who lacks these things, including love and brotherly kindness, is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. In other words, you profess faith, you've been baptized, you think you're saved, and you're missing the point of your baptism, which points to a true Christian being cleansed in their lifestyle and producing true spiritual fruit. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure, for if you do these things, you will never stumble." For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So this is crucial. If we don't love God and love our neighbor, our enemy, our brother, then we don't know God, says John. And that's a problem. So Paul is telling us here that this love for God, which expresses itself, among other ways, in love for others, is vital and essential, and there's no substitute for it. There's no substitute for it. You you can't say, well, I don't have love for God expressed through love for others, but I'm going to do something else. I'm going to give some extra money to the church for an indulgence. I'm going to volunteer on some type of committee, or I'm going to go into the ministry and be a missionary, or whatever it is. I've, I've got all these other things going for me. No, there's no substitute for Christian love. There's no substitute for desiring and delighting in and adoring and being loyal to and just being completely consecrated to God Himself and expressing that love for Him by loving other people and forgiving other people as He has forgiven you. There's no substitute for loving God by obeying His commandments with respect to Him and with respect to other people. If you love me, keep my commandments, Jesus says. No substitute for love. And Paul gives in this chapter a number of substitutes that perhaps people in Corinth were using these aspects of their life to deceive themselves into thinking that they were true Christians when they were not. Perhaps he's just thinking in general based upon his pastoral experience, the types of things that people use to deceive themselves to somehow replace that love that God requires and that 
every true believer produces by the grace of God. We don't know why he came up with this list, but it's, it's a great list. Ultimately, it's the Holy Spirit that gave him this list. There's no substitute for love. The first possible substitute he mentions is eloquence. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging symbol. Now, eloquence is a gift, a spiritual gift that God gives. And we've all sat and listened to a conference speaker or you know, watched Paul Washer on YouTube or sat in a prayer meeting as somebody is just anointed with the Spirit to pray. And we have been blessed by the ability God has given them to speak the truth of God from the heart. Not some sort of phony eloquence and memorizing words and phrases to, to try and... Um, impress people but but you know just it just seems to flow they're quoting scripture and they're speaking from the heart whether they're preaching or praying or in a godly conversation that we have or maybe they're in church leadership uh, maybe they're an officer an elder or a deacon and they pull you aside and they're just giving you a pep talk in the Christian life and there's eloquence there's an ability to speak the truth of God in a way that leads people to Christ that is an instrument by which God saves people and draws them to Christ and moves the hearts of believers to piety and love for God. And Paul is saying, as wonderful as that is, and of course in Corinth, Paul was, was being criticized, especially in 2 Corinthians this comes out, he was being criticized because apparently he was not as eloquent as some of these other teachers that had come down the pike, these different super apostles as they're called. And Paul, though we would say he's incredibly eloquent to the point where in some of his epistles, opponents of exclusive psalmody think think he's borrowing from Christian hymns of the day because his words are so eloquent. Uh, The Spirit gave him a gift of eloquence, but apparently at times in his weakness, he was nowhere near as eloquent as some of these super apostles. And so they said his speech is contemptible and that they weren't able to discern the, the, the beauty and the vital truth in his message. But in any event, he's saying eloquence is good. It's a gift of God. Praise God for it. We've all been blessed by it in many ways. But it's no substitute for love. And over the years, I think in every generation, and I can say I've known of situations like this, in every generation, it comes to light to one extent or another some of the greatest preachers in the Christian church, it's found out that their, either their personal life or the life of the congregation and the inner workings of the leadership and some of those types of things and maybe things behind the scenes where nobody would really know unless you're in the congregation, they're an absolute train wreck. And in some cases, it's been found out that they had a secret life of immorality. And, uh, not too long ago, there was a, a Scottish Presbyterian minister who committed suicide after his secret life was found out. So people can be eloquent. In fact, that particular uh, preacher was a famous conference speaker. And uh, there's another RP pastor that has said that he was at one of, as, when this guy spoke, I think it was in Grand Rapids, and heard him speak at the Puritan conference. And... Uh, and he was just moved by this man's message. So, eloquence 
is a gift from God. And I trust that that man's eloquence was used by God, certainly in the life of that RP pastor. I have no doubt that if Judas was an eloquent preacher, we have no reason to think that he wasn't, that people were saved through his ministry. God uses these gifts to expand his kingdom and to be a blessing to his people corporately for the edification of the, of the saints. But it's no substitute for love. And Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27 says he has to examine himself and discipline himself, lest in preaching to others so that they might be saved, he himself would be a castaway and be sent to hell, just like Judas. So leading others to Christ, moving other people to piety, being the instrument in the Redeemer's hands, as good as that is, that is no substitute for a true heartfelt love for God and for His people and for others and even for enemies. No substitute. And Matthew 7, verse 21 says that there are people that Jesus says on the, the last day, they'll say, Lord, Lord. They're saying all the right words. They're professing the truth. They prophesied in His name. They did many, mighty works in His name. Perhaps some of them were great, eloquent preachers of the Gospel in His name. And thousands were converted. But He says, I never knew you workers of iniquity. You did not do the will of my heavenly Father as summarized in love. So eloquence is no substitute for love. Secondly, knowledge. Though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, he goes on at the end of the verse, I am nothing. There's a lot of knowledge that we can have. And just specifically thinking spiritually here, we can have biblical knowledge. Knowledge of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Knowledge of the original languages backwards and forwards. Backwards being Hebrew, forwards being Greek. But you can have theological knowledge. You can memorize the, the uh, Heidelberg Catechism, the, the larger catechism, the shorter catechism. You can memorize Bible passages, the Navigator Bible memory system. You can have academic, intellectual knowledge experiential knowledge in the life of the church and understanding, the, as few people, I guess, as would fall into this category, understanding the RPCNA's constitution and uh, parliamentary church politics and all of those things. You can have apologetic knowledge and be able to defend the faith and show that, indeed, the atheist who says there's no God is a fool. You can have moral and ethical or philosophical knowledge about the Christian system of truth and ethics. You can be a theological encyclopedia. And the way Paul describes it here, I mean, you've got this supernatural gift of prophecy, you understand all the mysteries, all knowledge, but it's no substitute for love for God expressed in love for others. It's not a substitute. It may be a great blessing to the church and listening to that person who on judgment day is cast into hell, but during his ministry, listening to him, people were saved, people were taught, people were edified, but it's, it doesn't end well for that guy who had that knowledge without love. Paul says, even if it was me, I would be nothing to have knowledge without love. I mean, Balaam prophesied some of the most beautiful statements looking forward to the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Saul was among the prophets, King Saul. 
Judas Iscariot, I already mentioned. Demas was a fellow minister and preacher with the Apostle Paul. But for all we know, they all went to hell. Because they, you know, Demas, he was in love with this present world. He didn't truly love God. He didn't have Christian love. So we need to be very careful with this. Hebrews chapter 6, describing the reprobate person who will never come to repentance, who has fallen away, not from true salvation, but from his profession of faith in the visible church. Hebrews 6 verse 4, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good Word of God and the powers of the age to come if they fall away to renew them to repentance since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put Him to an open shame. For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed whose end is to be burned. So you can taste of the Word of God. You can digest it. You can assimilate that knowledge into your mental and intellectual and academic uh, supply of truth. But if you have not true conversion expressed and evidenced in true love for God and His people, then you're just like the person who was once enlightened. But it was not true saving enlightenment. So knowledge. If we sin willfully after coming to a knowledge of the truth, there's no sacrifice of sins remaining. Hebrews 10. 2 Peter 2 says it would have been better to have never known the way of righteousness than to have known it merely with head knowledge and then ran back like the pig to the mire or like a dog to its vomit. So knowledge is not a substitute. Thirdly, faith of miracles or miraculous faith is not a substitute for Christian love. Though I have all faith, not talking about saving, justifying faith there, it's talking about the, the special gift of miraculous faith that you see in people who were unconverted, yet who were healed by Jesus. They believed that He would heal them. They believed in His supernatural power. Uh, as we saw in Matthew 7, some people even do miraculous works in His name, like Judas, but they're unconverted. And so here what you have is the person who has that faith of miracles. And they believe God for a miracle. And they have the kind of faith in God's omnipotent supernatural power that if they, you know, Jesus says if you have a mustard seed of faith, you'll be able to remove mountains. They have this miraculous faith. They have the faith of miracles. They believe in the supernatural power of God. And they pray for things and things happen. Uh, Don't think that just because you prayed for something and it came to pass and it happens to be a good thing that you could attribute to God's good providence that you're converted. There are many people who pray for things and those things happen. As I said this morning, the demons asked to be sent into the pigs. That doesn't mean the demons are saved just because Jesus sent them into the pigs. You can have your request granted. The demons believed Jesus had the power to send them into the pigs. I don't have the power to send them into the pigs. You don't have the power to send them into the pigs. 
The demons believed Jesus, the Son of God, had the power to send them into the pigs. Jesus sent us into the pigs. He sent them into the pigs. And they had that, in one sense, faith of miracles. But that kind of faith of demons is not going to get you to heaven. It's not true, saving, justifying faith that looks to Christ as prophet, priest, and king and trusts in His perfect righteousness. Judas had that faith. That's how he performed miracles. Read the anointing that Judas received in Matthew chapter 10. So, just because you've seen something miraculous or even in God's ordinary providence, God has seemingly answered your prayer. You could be like King Ahab. God answered his prayer when he fasted and uh, humbled himself in sackcloth and ashes. But Ahab is in hell. So, faith of miracles, faith in God's providence is not a substitute for Christian love. So important today. So many teachers on the television that want you to think saving faith is nothing more than believing God to heal your knee or something like that. It's not. It's certainly no substitute for Christian love. Fourthly, generous giving. Though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, he says it profits me nothing. You can tithe to the church. You can give your offerings. You can give to the poor. You can volunteer at a soup kitchen. You can do volunteer work in the life of the church. You can give your entire life to full-time Christian ministry. You, you, You can give sacrificially. But the Pharisees did many of those things. They gave to be seen by men. They had ulterior motives for giving. And I mean, think of the extremity. Think of just how extreme this is. Paul's saying, if I bestow all my goods... Now, he didn't have a lot of goods, but I don't think that's his point to bring that into into the, the case here. If you were extremely wealthy and you gave all that you own to feed the poor, it still would not be a substitute for heartfelt love for God manifested through a heartfelt love for other people. Some people might give all they have to the poor out of a love for God and others, and that's commendable. But this is saying just the outward action itself is not a substitute for an inward self-sacrificial love for those people. If you're just doing it to be seen by others, or you're doing it in a secretive way so that you can really fulfill what Jesus said and doing it secretly just for your own personal self-righteousness to earn your way to heaven. I mean, Pharisaism has so many cunning, crafty methods. It's, it's, it's not going to amount to anything. It profits you nothing. And lastly, martyrdom. Again, just think how extreme the examples are. Paul is really trying to get his point across that though I give my body to be burned but have not love, it profits me nothing. A martyr dying for the cause of Christ. Standing alone for truth and righteousness. Risking his or her life for the sake of conscience and obedience to the Word of God. Fully devoted to the cause of the Christian worldview. Willing to suffer and die for it. And yet, not doing it out of love for God, and and certainly no true love for his or her neighbor. Martyrdom is not a substitute. You can't give yourself, you can't sacrifice yourself for your own sins. There's no substitute 
for the love of God received by faith and reciprocated in love for God and His people. There's no substitute for that. Uh, Giving yourself, giving your body to be burned is not a substitute for Christian love. You have to have Christian love. It doesn't matter who you are. The best, I mean, if we put all these together, you've got the most eloquent, knowledgeable preacher, teacher, apologist who prays and God does amazing things and gives all of the proceeds to the poor and eventually dies as a martyr, it actually amounts to zero zilch if you're not actually doing it for God and you don't actually love other people. No substitute for love. Now, just in in closing here, to lack Christian love is to lack everything. And there are three things that Paul says we lack if we lack Christian love. And really, they amount to everything. First, he says that in verse 1, we become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. In other words, if we lack Christian love, we lack influence. The lack of Christian love will rob us of our influence. Doesn't matter how eloquent we are, doesn't matter how great our voice sounds, and so on and so forth. It does not actually matter. And I've met people that were in churches with some of the most popular preachers, popular Reformed preachers, people that I admit I still listen to, but they were in that church. And uh, th- there was a rat in the woodpile. It was not a good situation. And uh, the people who knew about it and were affected by it, it, the eloquent preaching was like sounding brass and a clanging cymbal. And that's the same way for parents. You can have all kinds of eloquent prayers and teaching and family worship, but at the end of the day, your children are going to hear that as a, a sounding brass, as a clanging cymbal, as just a bunch of noise if you don't truly show that you love God and that you love them. So you have no influence without love. Secondly, you have, sorry to say, no value. No value without Christian love. Paul says, if I don't have love, I am nothing. Doesn't matter if I'm a theological genius. Doesn't matter about answered prayers and and all the earth-shattering, mountain-moving. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter at all. I am nothing. God might have done a bunch of mighty works in spite of me in a way, but ultimately, though I perhaps thought much of myself, I am nothing. Absolutely nothing. No value. And at the last day, he won't say, well done, good and faithful servant. He'll say, depart, you accursed, into the place prepared for the devil and his angels. Thirdly, to lack Christian love is to lack salvation. You can think about this, Paul says. I'm I'm done here in a second. Um, He says, verse 3, paraphrasing, to die as a loveless martyr profits me nothing. To die as a loveless martyr profits me nothing. To die without love is to lose my own never-dying soul into hell for eternity. Even if I die as a martyr, if I'm a loveless martyr, it profits me nothing. Now we know that for the believer, to live as Christ and to die is gain. We know that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, which is great gain. It's great profit. We know that in Revelation 2.10, those who are faithful to death receive the crown of life. Highly profitable for all eternity. 
Those who labor for Christ and die are, are blessed are they, are they who die in the Lord. For their work shall follow them and they will enter into their rest. Revelation 14.13 But to do so without love means that you're not a Christian. You didn't live to live as Christ. That wasn't you. You didn't die in the Lord. And Matthew 5, if you're persecuted, even put to death for the faith, blessed are you who are persecuted, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. But if you're a loveless martyr, if you're someone who has no love, doesn't matter if you're persecuted for your theological convictions, it will profit you nothing. You will not be an heir to the kingdom of God. Martyrdom is only great gain for the true Christian. And so, the only response that we can have at this point, if we look at our lives, and again, we're going to consider these things in in the details. Often the devil's in the details, but the Holy Spirit is in these details, and we're going to be considering them in the weeks ahead, God willing. But the only response here, if we feel convicted about this, if we sense that perhaps, though we've preached and proclaimed and evangelized to others, that we ourselves may be a castaway, The only response is repentance and faith. Just like any other sin, there's no magic formula. There's no special directive. Repentance and faith. Identify your lack of love. The victims of your lack of love. Identify them. Think about it. Write them down. Confess your sins to God. Confess your sins to the people that you have not loved. That you have not adored and cultivated a a godly relationship with those whom your sins have harmed and perhaps even destroyed the relationship confess your sins humbly to those people and confess them to God seeking mercy by faith in Jesus Christ be like Zacchaeus who had a list of all the people that he cheated and he went back and identified these people and confessed his sin and paid them out restitution. I'm not saying pay restitution. Maybe you need to, depending on what your sin is. But you need to go through and confess it to God and confess it to those people. And then, the joy of salvation. Then there's hope. Then there's peace with God through the blood of Jesus Christ. Because there's true turning from sin and true faith in Christ. And just like Jesus said to Zacchaeus, today salvation has come to your house, to your family, to your household. That is the Gospel as it applies to our lack of love. And even if you are a Christian, it's probably good that we should do that too. We need to do that. Let's do it. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we give thanks for Your Word, which in so many respects preaches itself. Please apply it to our hearts and our lives and our relationships by the sovereign almighty power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.